Uh, it's good to be here this morning, good to gather and worship our God. Um, what a privilege and pleasure it is. Um, on that note, uh, as we uh, move toward uh, the sermon this morning, I just want to pause, and uh, you, you, may have, you may have noticed over the last weeks, um, our, our practice has been not to talk COVID from up here, um, but to just kind of leave that at the door. Our, our goal as we gather uh, is to honor Christ and to look at him, and uh, we don't want that to be a distraction, um, but uh, it's a reality, the world that we live in, and we just want to stay uh, current and keep that conversation with you. Um, praise the Lord, it has not affected us the way it has uh, some churches um, Brothers preaching out in Ontario who are having a real hard time getting together. Um, and uh, in the West, we've had uh, significant freedom, and we appreciate that. Um, one of the things that, that pains me, though, to hear, um, not in our church, praise God, but in other places, is, is squabbles and dissension growing over COVID and churches getting pulled. And that ought not to be the case. And uh, again, I haven't heard that here, but we just want to continue to make sure that doesn't become uh, a reality for us. Um, and uh, I think we all hoped that this would have blown over by now and this would be a, a thing of the past and we could laugh about 2020. Um, sounds like 2020 is going to be bleeding into 2021. Um, but as we, uh, as we try to navigate this together, as we try to walk this uh, in faith as, a, as the church, um, I want us to look together just briefly, 1 Peter chapter 2, um, starting in uh, verse 13. Um, sorry, Second uh, Peter. Now, why am I confused? Two, I'm all over the place. It is First Peter, and I'm looking at chapter one instead of chapter two. Sorry. There we go. First Peter, two thirteen. If I would look up the numbers that I said with my mouth, that would be better. Um, Peter writes this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, living as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Those words were written to a church whose emperor was killing them, putting Christians to death. And, and Peter says, honor him. Give him the respect he's due. Uh, Romans 13 tells us that, that, that there is no government established except that which is established by God. He's over it. Uh, and so even if you don't like the government, if you don't agree with our government, that's not the point here. Um, and so we submit to Jesus. It's for the sake of Christ that we honor uh, those placed above us. And, and Christ tells us to, to honor our government. And so obviously, um, there is a time where government oversteps its bounds. And, and, and government commands what Christ has forbidden, or the government forbids what Christ has commanded. And, and then we have clear biblical warrant to say, no, we go with Christ. And, and if that means walking into imprisonment or execution, so be it. Um, we stand with Christ. But um, so long as we're able to honor the government fully, we want to do that. And so as we try to navigate these waters as, as Christians and, and honor Christ as supreme while still respecting our authorities, um, 
I want to point us again to that last verse, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's, that's where we got to live right now. Honoring one another, loving the church, honoring the emperor, and fearing God. Um, there are people from all different perspectives about COVID gathered here today, as it should be. Um, there are people who uh, are um, on the, the side of being very cautious and very diligent, and there are those who would say, forget it, just give me COVID today, let's get it done. Um, that need not divide us, and, and, and that strains us as we gather. We need to be respectful and conscious of one another. We need to be loving toward another, one another, honor one another, um, but, it, but that ought not separate us. And as we come together, there are government um, recommendations and regulations that they put out, masks for singing and social distancing. Um, those aren't salvation issues. Those aren't doctrine issues. We can, we can follow those and still worship Christ as he's commanded. So um, we're going to seek to do that together. Um, and uh, um, I just want to encourage you as we gather to love one another, be patient with one another, be patient and gracious toward us as leadership as we're trying to navigate this. Um, we'll see what happens as Calgary and Edmonton kind of increase their regulations. That, that may come here as well. Um, you know what? Prioritize the gathering of the saints as much as we can. Um, and, uh, um, and let's just have grace with one another and, uh, and stick to the important things. Along with that, um, as we seek to kind of fulfill these, these mandates, one of the things we have to do is social distancing in our seating plan. And so you'll see cohorts that are kind of crammed up together in the front and, and others scattered out. Um, that's becoming an issue for us with seating. Last week, it was cozy in here. And uh, so we're looking at ways to maximize our space, possibly doing an overflow at the back, some more rows up here, whatever we need to do um, to gather um, but I just want to invite you to uh, embrace some inconvenience for a little while. It won't be as comfortable. You're going to get seated in a place that you wish you weren't seated. Um, you're, you're, you're going to have to put your preferences aside. Uh, and for the good of the church and loving for one another, um, be willing to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable as we kind of work through this. And, and just see that as an opportunity to practically love the church, to honor God and say, I'll sit in the creaky, uncomfortable chair in the spray zone, um, and, and that'll be okay because we're gathering for Christ. Uh, boy, this, the spray zone takes a new level during COVID, doesn't it? Maybe you prefer to be in the overflow at the back where the audio stinks and you can't see everybody. Um, but hey, praise God, we can worship him together. So I just want to invite you to that. Um, the other thing that just needs to be mentioned again, um, our ushers are working diligently. And if you are a regular part of this church and you have two working legs, I would ask you to ask yourself, why am I not volunteered for that? Um, we just need lots of help and uh, we'll train you and help you figure that out. Um, but, but having another, I don't know, eight people, that'd be about right, Corey, um, would just be fantastic. And then you would just get scheduled in this nice um, periodical schedule and it'd be beautiful. Uh, but encourage you with that, church. Uh, again, thank you. This is, not a, this is not an address born out of problems and dissension in the church. Um, and I love that. I appreciate that. Um, but we want to keep going that way. Um, so let me, uh, let me just pause. Let's pray there as we turn to, uh, to God's word then. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are uh, the God who is sovereign over all things. Um, that you are on your throne. You have set your king in Zion. 
And, uh, and you're sovereign over all of this. You're sovereign over uh, rulers and nations and uh, public health authorities and viruses and all the rest. And so, God, we trust you. We praise you. Uh, help us to walk faithfully together. Help us to be an example um, of, of what you've called your church to be, to love one another, to set aside our personal preferences and, uh, and desires and sacrificially love one another uh, because we're united in Christ, because we are a body. Uh, Lord, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts to hear uh, your word and your truth uh, and to be changed by it. And Lord, that uh, you'd be at work this morning as we look into your word. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I first should have done was told the kids that they can head out. They're all sitting there wondering, when do I get to go? So kids, you can head out to children's ministry. Um, meet your teacher at the back. Um, there's also nursery downstairs and, uh, and a, a, a room behind the glass there if you need a little quiet place for some crying kids. Um, but I would like to say this. I love it. It's good to hear babies in with us. And so don't be ashamed of that. Um, you do what you need to do. Um, but but uh, that's not a huge deal for us. Um, noisy kids is a sign of life and joy that we embrace. So let me ask you a question. Are you religious? <laughs> there it is. Why does that make it so uncomfortable? Why is that such an awkward question? Are you religious? As, as we just heard, there are some in our church who would absolutely say, no, not religious, not me. Well, Webster says that religion is this. The service and worship of God or the supernatural, commitment or devotion to religious faith or observance. So, do you serve and worship God? Are you devoted to your faith? That same person would say, no, you're not, well, yes, <laughs> you're going to ruin my illustration. Oh, Terry's just not saved. I didn't, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, so by the definition, we look at that and go, well, yeah. Why are so many Christians want to distance themselves from that word, why does it make us so uneasy? Well, definitions don't always tell the whole story, do they? And, and, and though I have no problem saying that I'm religious according to my definition, and, and actually even according to Webster's definition, when somebody comes and asks me, are you religious? I don't know what they mean by that. I don't know what baggage they have with that. And, and to be honest, I'm a little nervous that they have a friend or someone they know um, who considers themselves or who they consider religious, but is also a jerk, is also just a hypocrite. And so it's a little nerve-wracking. I don't want to be associated with that. And, and, and so we take religion and, and we kind of hold it at arm's length. Religion has taken on this meaning of a, a cold, detached following of, of rules, um, and, and it just kind of reeks of hypocrisy. And I think it's sad to say, but obviously that kind of false religion, that kind of hypocrisy has become so common in our day that, that I think most Christians are really uncomfortable with that word religious. And it begs the question, what is religion? What is it really? Uh, 
What's the right understanding of that word? And, and to be even more precise, it actually doesn't matter at all what I think religion is or even what Webster's thinks religion is. What we need to know is what, what does God say about religion? What does God say that it is? And so that's our question this morning that we're going to be answering. Um, what is true religion according to God? And we're going to be looking at, at James chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me, uh, James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there should be one in the pew there in front of you or somewhere near you. Grab it. Um, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, confession time, I have nothing of value for you. Uh, I don't bring any great wisdom. Um, this is all I have. And so our hope is just to dig into God's Word together, and we want you to be able to see it in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible or, or one that you can read easily, take this one. It's our gift to you. Um, we're thrilled to let you have that as your own. Um, but let me read uh, these, these just two short verses, the end of chapter one here for us, starting in verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So as we look at this passage, we have these two competing ideas of religion. You, you have man's religion versus God's religion. Verse 26 tells us about man's religion. This, this guy here that, that thinks he's Religious, and we're kind of tipped off right away. If anyone thinks he's religious, there's some, some skepticism thrown in there immediately. Um, and, and I think what James is drawing our attention to is, as we look at verse 26 is that man's religion is, is exterior. Okay, It's something out there. It's something that this person does. Now, just to help us understand um, what, what the original readers of this letter would have been thinking, what James was trying to communicate... Um, the word that James uses here is not, not a common one. It's only used two other times in the Bible. Um, but the idea behind it is, is religious observance or religious practices. Uh, it is used in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about service in the temple and these kinds of things. So um, James is writing to Christians who grew up as Jews. They grew up with very clear religious expectations, Right? yearly feasts and sacrifices in the temple, and they had this detailed outline of what they were to offer and when and how. Um, sadly and, and, and very mistakenly, the Jews uh, took that and went hard into a works-focused religion. They, they kind of fulfilled that, um, that negative understanding of religion as this kind of cold drudgery duty. Certainly not all of them, but but by and large, and, and very much that's what we see in the Pharisees of Jesus' day, um, and, and even to today, if you talk to the average uh, Jew, um, they would say, yeah, obey the, the 613 commands and, 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 and observe the feasts, and God will be pleased. That's it. Do the, do the checklist. But all of these things, every, every sacrifice, every offering, even the temple itself, they were, they were all put there by God as pointing forward to Jesus. They were trying to prepare the people and teach them about what Christ would be when he came. And, and so now that Jesus has come and those things have become obsolete, you, you can imagine that these people are kind of left thinking, now what? Right? We, we've lost this, this clear list. 
We, we used to know exactly what to do to, to please God. Come on this day, bring this sacrifice, uh, eat this, don't eat that. That was their religious practices and, and, and that was their obedience to God. And so now they're, they're left a little bit lost. And yet James uh, is still evasive a little bit as he answers this question because he doesn't give them a new to-do list. He doesn't replace the to-do list from Judaism with a to-do list um, for Christ. Instead, he, he points to the heart. He points to the heart behind it. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, if you, if you think you're doing all of the right things on your checklist, whatever those things may be, but your heart is wrong, then all of these things that you're doing are, are worthless anyway. It doesn't matter. Now, I hope you're looking at the text in front of you and asking the question, well, what does this have to do with the tongue, right? Jesus says the person does not bridle, or James, this person does not bridle his tongue. Uh, how do you make the jump from tongue to heart? Well, I, I think James does that. Um, James says that, that the one who doesn't bridle his tongue deceives his heart. Those go together. The unbridled tongue shows a, a deceived heart. So outward religion without this bridled tongue tells us that the person's heart is, is not right. He thinks he's doing the right things, but his heart is not in it. Uh, and so this, this heart-tongue connection is significant. Um, that's a, a, a significant test here that James lays out. And, and, and certainly not the only test. Right? It's not the only thing we could put in that passage. If, if you were to look at this and say, um, if someone thinks he's religious but does not keep himself from murdering, um, that would draw some concern, right? That would draw some question. If someone thinks he's religious but doesn't keep himself from stealing or from idolatry or adultery, all those things would draw this same question. But the tongue is significant. And, and here's why. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Matthew 12, uh, verse 33 and 34, either you make the tree good and its fruit good, or you make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see it? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just like a, a, an apple tree is shown to be an apple tree by the apples, and an orange tree is shown to be an orange tree by its oranges, the, the nature, the character of the heart uh, shows up in our words, shows up in our speech. The average person speaks about 18,000 words a day. Um, that's, a, that's about a 54-page book. Some of you are like, I'm at like three pages, but my wife, she's more at like 150. So you guys balance each other out. Um, that's okay. Um, but you pile that up, 54 pages a day, 18,000 words a day over the course of a year. Um, that's 25, 800 page volumes worth of words. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of output. You can control and hide a lot of things but the tongue will eventually make its way out. Try as you may, but in some subtle and some obvious ways, um, your words will tell the story of your heart. 
Whether it's foul language or coarse joking or slander or gossip or outbursts of anger or flattery and lies, um, our words, even just by their sheer volume, eventually they betray the state of our heart. And that's what truly matters to the Lord. That's what he's after. Man's religion, again, is about the, the exterior. What do I need to do to impress God? I'll go to church every Sunday, Uh, I'll give money, I'll do volunteer work, I'll I'll perform whatever rituals or ceremonies, I'll quit smoking, I'll never have another drink in my life, Uh, I will do whatever it takes. Just, Just give me the checklist, right? But the Lord doesn't want your outward actions, his desire is the heart. And so if you do all of these things, thinking that you're religious, thinking that you're pleasing God and fulfilling this, this checklist, but the words of your mouth, when you think no one will notice, when you begin to speak freely and let your guard down, if your unchecked words show that, that your heart is not truly submitted to the Lord, then you're deceiving yourself. And, and James says, what you call religion uh, is actually worthless. It doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't impress God, and it never has. Um, Even in Israel, uh, through Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord rebuked Israel, saying this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So he says, "I, I gave you this list of things to do, but that wasn't the point. What I want is your love. What I want is is for you to to know me and that knowledge there isn't just kind of knowing facts about God. It's an intimacy with God, to know him personally. And so much of what is called religion today, so much of what passes for, for Christianity is this kind of empty, outward, hollow display. It's religion that that's kind of sequestered. It's that part of my life. Religion is what I do on, on Sundays and, and maybe Wednesday nights. Um, it, it's religion that, that is just kind of over there. This is, this is me. This is who I am. And that's the religious thing that I do. And it's ugly. It produces pride because we're looking at ourselves and we're looking at our own outward acts and our, our religious service as if that's what makes us acceptable to God. And, and so we begin to compare ourselves to others, my religious duty versus his, and, and hopefully I can get mine a little higher. And we look down on those who are lesser. And yet underneath that shell of pride, there's often a terrible insecurity, a level of, of doubt um, have I ever done enough? Have I, have I really made it? And, 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 and what if people on the outside would see what's really inside? What if they were able to see um, my sinfulness and my messy heart and, and life? And it creates churches where, where people come together um, and, and put on a mask and, 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 and don't let anybody in, right? I have to put forward this this perception that I've got it all together. Churches where people come who are, who are squeaky clean, who have it all working right, and, and, and there's really no place for sinners. But worst of all, as James points out, man's religion is worthless. God's not impressed. It, it doesn't accomplish what you hoped it would accomplish. So we have to see the problem rightly. We have sinned against a holy God. 
He, he created us. We're his. He is rightly worthy of all glory and honor and, and worship and obedience. And, and in our arrogance, we've, we've looked at him and said, no, thank you. I've got it. I think I'll be God. Thank you very much. I will decide what is right and wrong. I will do what I want to do. Essentially, we've said, I will not worship and serve you. I will worship and serve me. And we all live by that. We're born into that. That's our natural disposition. Not a single one of us has lived rightly before God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for that rebellion, for that treason against the infinitely worthy God, we deserve hell, death. Even Jesus himself says, Matthew 13, 41 to 42, he says this, the son of man, that's how he refers to himself, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we deserve. That's hell. And man's religion looks at this infinite debt that we owe against the justice and glory of God and arrogantly says, I'll fix it. I got that. I'll do some good deeds. I'll do some volunteer work. I'll give some money. I'll patch that right up. It'll be like it never happened. But the reality is it's like, it's like throwing thimbles of water onto the Chicago fire. It's like going to fix the Titanic with one strip of, of duct tape. It's like trying to soak up the ocean with a single Kleenex. We, you're so far from doing it. It's, it's not only delusional, it's insulting. And that kind of religion that says, oh, I'll fix it. I'll make this right. I'll do some good things and then God will be happy. It's worthless. That's man's religion. Now let's look at God's take on it. Verse 27, we see the, the other side of it. James tells us religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So God's Religion, religion that, that he finds undefiled, pure, the kind of religion that makes God smile, that he accepts, is two things. First, it visits orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, again, to understand that properly, we need to kind of understand the, the culture that James is in and writing to, um, this mix of Greek and Roman culture, um, and, and, and the Jewish culture that his audience would have mostly grown up in um, was very much a patriarchal culture. It was about the man as the head of the household, and, and everything was focused on that. And so even more than today, a, a widow or an orphan in that culture was, was in serious trouble. They were in a desperate, desolate situation. There was, there was no opportunity to work. Um, there, there was no rights or protections under the law or very little. Um, they were cast aside. They were insignificant, unimportant. They would be the, the poor, the desolate. They, they were the undesirables of society. And so as we kind of look at what James is saying and extrapolate that a little bit to our day, 
Absolutely, this would apply to literal widows and orphans, those who are in need. But much more than that, uh, it, would, it would apply much more broadly. This is the, the unemployed, the homeless, the addict, the single mom, the new immigrant. This is those with, with debilitating mental illness. This is those with severe handicap. Anyone who's, who's marginalized and abandoned, who's cast aside, who's, who's in need and unvalued by society. James is saying true religion, religion that God finds acceptable, cares about them. The word visit there uh, is so much more than just like a visit over coffee. Um, that's not what it's saying. It, it's to care for. You can imagine in that day um, to become terribly sick and, and stuck in your home and unable to work. Um, there, there is no, there, there's no free health care. Um, there, there is no um, workers there's no, there's no compensation. Um, you're stuck. You're on your own. You need help. If, you, if you're in prison, um, you don't get nice three square meals a day in a warm bed in prison. You're, you're thrown in there. And if you want to eat, hopefully somebody brings you food. That's what he's talking about, to, to visit them. It's to take their burden upon yourself and to carry it with them. That's the kind of religion that God Accepts and, and, and Jesus uses very similar language, very similar example. Um, Matthew 25, um, verse, starting verse 31, longer section. I think we'll get the whole thing up on the screen. Um, Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, this is, this is why, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So the picture is the, the end of time. Jesus comes back in his glory to claim his, his rightful place as king uh, to judge the world. And he separates the people into two groups, the, the sheep and the goats. Those who were welcomed into eternity and, and joy with him and and those who were cast out, those that we read of earlier, verses 41 and 42, were cast into uh, the fiery furnace, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what does Jesus use as the distinguishing mark? Their love for the outcasts. Their love for those who were under affliction and, and trial. Whether or not they, they sacrificially cared for and provided for the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the imprisoned, those that society had forgotten. Do you love that way? Do you care about those around you in need? How easy is it for us to just shrug that off? They'll be okay. 
There's government help. Surely they have someone else that can help them. And are you willing to sacrifice from your own hard-earned money that you deserve to someone who doesn't deserve it? Someone who has no ability to pay you back? Do we see evidence of, of this in our own lives? Do you take their burden as your own? Are you eager to love them as a way of loving and honoring Christ? Religion that God accepts as pure and undefiled uh, is marked by that kind of self-sacrificing, generous love. Secondly then, verse 27, religion of God is marked by keeping oneself unstained from the world. Now, there's an understanding of uh, the world here that we, we need to get right. Um, he's not talking about the physical world. He's not saying don't get dirt on you. Um, the word world here is used in, in, in the sense of, of this, this broken system of this world that is in opposition to God. And so it's what Paul is talking about in, in Ephesians 2, um, 1 and 2. And, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so as we, look at, um, as we look at scripture's picture of what is against us, what are we fighting against, there's, there's three things and they all show up in this passage. Uh, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the, the flesh is our own sinful desires, our corrupt desires for things um, other than God, for, for sinful things. The devil is a, is a real being, an, an, an angelic or demonic being who rebelled against God and, and who works to twist and fight against the Lord and corrupt this world. And then the world, which is kind of the, the outcome of both of those at work. It's this system of thinking that that's, shows up clearly in, in Wall Street and in Hollywood and in this corrupt world that runs after self and sin. The world is in rebellion against God. It's filled with and characterized by serving of self and, and running after sin. And it loves the things that God hates. Religion that God accepts is that which is unstained by the world. It's not dirtied by it. Those who are willing to step out of that worldly system to be out of step with the world in order to be in step with God. Religion that God accepts is that which, is, which actually produces holiness, purity. It doesn't, doesn't wink at sin. It doesn't take sin lightly. Thinking, well, I can lie a little here and there. I can enjoy a, a racy movie and just kind of satisfy my lust a little bit. It's not too far. So I got a little carried away. I get a little drunk every now and then. Does it really matter? I'm, I'm pretty loving toward most people. It's just those people that I hate, and you won't convince me otherwise. So what if I gossip here and there a little bit? And it doesn't get out. It's not hurting anyone. No, religion that God finds acceptable does not find sin acceptable doesn't harbor sin and, and protect it. it. It hates what God hates. It's unstained by the world. It, it strives after holiness and, and purity, obedience to God. Just as James already said back in, in 1 verse 21, 
Therefore, put away all filthiness and, and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Uh, Hebrews 12.14 says we're out to, to strive for holiness, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. That's the religion that the Lord himself approves of. Not only does it bridle its tongue, but it loves others sacrificially and it keeps itself unstained from the world. Now, we need to ask the question, why? How is this different from man's religion? Or have we just kind of raised the bar? Is that the only difference? I think the best word for the difference between these two is allegiance. It's about allegiance. Man's religion is serving self. It asks, what's the minimum required of me to make God happy? It says, look at me and all the things that I do. By its ongoing sinful speech, it betrays that its heart is not there after God, but still selfish and sinful underneath. And man's religion is still rooted in this allegiance to self. But religion that pleases the Lord isn't just doing more. It's not just turning up the dial on the things that we do, making a longer checklist. It's not about giving X number of dollars to a poor person and, and, and living a little more higher standard of morality. Now that will please God. No, it's a picture here of absolute life-permeating obedience from the heart. It's giving God your full allegiance, not holding back, not, not saying, no, religion is just that thing that I do. It's saying, okay, God, I'm yours, all of me. Every part of my life, holding nothing back. It's saying, God, I, I trust you. And I will actually live no longer for myself, but for you. It's beautifully encapsulated in, in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. Sorry, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live. It's not me. It's not my life. This, this life that I have in the flesh, this body that's breathing and walking around, it's not serving me. It's Christ living through me. My allegiance is not to my own self, but, but everything I am is for Jesus. And then notice the motivation. That's so key. Rather than being pushed by how much do I have to do to please God? How do I finally get there? How, how many thimbles of water do I have to throw on the fire? How many Kleenexes do I have to soak up in the ocean? Instead, Paul says, no. No, I live this life in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not trying to arrogantly earn God's favor, trying to, to fix my problem of sin by my own good works, but rather responding humbly to the grace of God, admitting, I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against God. I deserve death and hell. And there's nothing that I can do to fix that. But he sent his son to die in my place. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not 
perish but have eternal life. He sent Jesus to take that penalty that I deserve, to take that ocean of God's wrath and absorb it completely so that I who am guilty can go free, can be forgiven, can be washed and, and cleansed. And because he's done that, because he's accepted me, not by anything that I've done, but actually contrary to everything I've ever done, I'm just going to joyfully give myself to him. I'll serve him with my whole heart, my entire being. And out of that holy, surrendered being begins to flow purity of speech. Love for those in need as God has loved me when I was in need. And, and a genuine hatred for sin as I come to actually love God. I can't help but hate what he hates. And we come to God in that way. We come in humility. Recognizing our own sin. And, and not looking to ourselves and look at what I've done, but looking at God, look what he's done. And so there's, there's no more comparing to one another except to say, wow, look how amazing my sin is that God has forgiven. Oh, you want to you see that? No, look how amazing my sin is that God has forgiven. And it produces a church that is, first of all, loving to those in need, that, that cares for those uh, joyfully who are, who are downtrodden and broken and, and, and needy. And a church that is together striving after holiness. Holiness matters deeply, but, but not in a way that makes us feel like we need to cover our sin and, and hide who we really are. Not in a way that, that makes some sinner walk in and feel uncomfortable, but rather because we're forgiven based on what Christ has done and not what I've done, we're free to admit. We're free to be open and honest. I was a wreck and I still kind of am. But God is at work and he's doing great things as we strive together to root out the sin in our lives. Um, but, but we're able to be honest about the messiness of it because that's, that's not the foundation that I'm standing on. Not attempting to impress God and earn his favor, but out of this overwhelming sense of gratitude for his undeserved kindness that he's already given. And it's that humble, gratitude-fueled obedience permeating every part of life as we seek to, to live for him wholly and completely from the depths of our heart. That's what God calls true religion. That's what he honors. We're going to close celebrating communion together. I'll invite the worship team to, to join me here. This is for believers in Christ. This is for those who have who've come to that place of saying, I am a sinner, I deserve hell, um, and trusted in Christ for forgiveness. If that's not you this morning, we just respectfully ask that you just observe. That's okay. Uh, but let me invite you in. Let me, let me invite you to, to recognize your sinfulness, and, and, and that offering goes out to all who believed, all who would repent of their sin, turn away from sin, and turn to Christ. And I would love to talk to you more about that. But for those who are believers here this morning, it's a time of reminding ourselves of what Christ has done, 
reflecting again on this great sacrifice, on God's unimaginable grace toward us. And and it ought to stir us up in in renewed gratitude and and joy in Him and love for Him. And and so that should be an occasion at the same time for self-examination. Looking at our own lives and asking ourselves, are there areas in my life that I'm not that I'm not given to the Lord? How's my speech? Is it wholesome and pure? Is it edifying to those who listen? How's my, my love for those around me? Am I, am I generous and, and caring for those in need? How, how's my holiness? How's my heart towards sin? Are there things that I'm hanging on to and refusing to give up? Now, all of us are going to find things on those lists um, that we need to grow in, that we need to repent of. I do. I have words from yesterday that I wish I had not spoken, that I need to repent of and grow in. None of us is perfect, not even close. That's why we need the cross. That's why we gather again joyfully to celebrate his sacrifice. The question is, are you willing to submit those things to the Lord? Be willing to lay that down in repentance and faith and embrace his work in you as he continues to work to change us and transform us, to give your life wholly and completely to him. Uh, and so we're going we're to join in song together before we partake of communion. Um, you'll notice you have two cups. The bread is on the bottom and the juice is on the top. Uh, but let me just invite you as we sing, uh, Maybe this song just hits right where your heart is and you want to stand and and sing with us. Maybe you've got something in the back of your mind. You need to just sit and talk with God. You need to spend some time repenting. You need to spend some time considering, again, um, the sacrifice of Christ. And so we're going to join uh, in song together, but let me just invite you. You need to do what you need to do. You need to spend some time with the Lord um, that that we can then uh, come together in, in humility and repentance.